I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. We are going back to the hive for season five of the, the Connor, Connor and Smith Show. Welcome back. It's um, been a while. 2023. We are in ya. Um... Hope your holidays were great. We had a fantastic time, didn't we? You know, I think we were so much more busier this year than in the previous COVID years because everyone wanted to gather. We had a lot more gifts to buy for people. Mm-hmm. So there was just a lot more things going on. We had definitely had a lot more dinners that we attended. Lots of dinners. Lots of diets are needed for all those dinners. Um, but we had a good time. We hope you, you all did too and are ready to face a new year. Um... We are talking to, drumroll please, Onika Phillips. Um, This was a fascinating discussion that we had. We could have talked so much longer, but this is important. Her show closes Sunday, the 8th of January. If you're willing, able, uh, and somewhere nearby, go check out 1776 on the Broadway. this is like her fifth Broadway show, and we will get into all that and the journey of all that. This is a fascinating, fascinating discussion. I'm so glad we had it, and it was so great catching up. We have a Patreon. Um, we thank all of our Patreon supporters uh, out there. You really help us um, keep this going. We are thankful for you. You can check it out on, on Patreon under Connor and Smith, Connor with an ER. And we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. In 1985, Tyler was meeting Justin at their favorite arcade, Longshot. Just as Justin was about to confess his love for Tyler, the world changed. Blending elements of 1980s pop culture and LGBTQIA fiction, we journey through this incredible experience that brings them closer together as they fight against a world trying to keep them apart. Listen to Longshot on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome. Uh, this has Hi. been long in the making, and I'm so happy you could join us. I'm sure. sitting here with my husband and co-host, Matt Connor. Hey, hey, hey. Matt. Hey. Hi. <laughs> and also our producer, Ryan Dean Halbrook. Hello, hello. Hi, Ryan. Can I ask you all a question? Yes. How's the sound? The sound is good. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Okay, so then I won't touch anything or change anything. No, it's perfect the way it is. All right. Where are you? Good old Brooklyn. You in the Brooklyn? In in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, baby. <laughs> and you're you're part of a oh, you know, huge show right now on <laughs> in the New York uh called yes. 1776. That's right, but the founding of this complicated country. And it is being done, is it Diane Paulus? It's directed by Diane Paulus and Jeffrey Page. And it is featuring a female cast. It is female, trans, and non-binary. That is incredible. Um, yeah. yeah. This, this I is... did not realize that. Yeah. I thought it was just a blanket female, but that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I think and for the most part, it presents all female. Um, and But we have a, 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 a trans um, 
castmate and a couple of people that identify non-binary. So, yeah. What about the actual team working on the show? Did they try to keep that uh, director, choreographer? What's the question? Is that is it also female heavy on the production? Oh, oh sorry. Okay, so you're asking the, 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 the sort of gender spectrum of the creative team? Yeah, since they had done the choice with the cast. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly, um, I would say, uh, people that sit hard on the binary, you know, she, her, he, him. So Diane is she, her, Jeffrey, he, him. Um, some, I believe we've had, um, say for example, assist assistant stage managers um, or production assistants who identify as they, um, but not necessarily trans. Mm -hmm. um, so, but in terms of the, the head creative team, um, it's, yeah, it's a binary, it's a binary, um, it's a binary team. And this, this I show- I pray to God I'm saying that correctly. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm, this still, show, I'm still learning myself. This show is very, um, uh, very much in the news, very groundbreaking. Um, tell me what it feels like to do this show that has been a place for basically white males for so many years. I think there's so much tribalism, possessiveness and ownership um, of material. And some of it lives in an important place of... Um, not wanting things appropriated and others live in a place of not wanting things usurped or replaced. Right. I think uh, as I learn and grow, all those arguments, values, desires have a place to at least be heard. Um, and I can understand why a show like 1776, which in itself is a niche musical right i right. often tell people if you if you happen to enjoy politics if you happen to enjoy history and you also happen to enjoy musicals this is the one for you <laughs> you know it's not wicked it's not lion king it's not it's not an entertainment piece it's certainly an edutainment piece mm -hmm. um and in a time where we feel tribalism happening so fiercely I think a show like this is important because it, I think it works for both sides. It works, for example, someone like me who is Caribbean born and raised, um, an immigrant to this country, very, very attached to my own history and feeling like the founding of the United States has very little to do with me. Um, someone like me to, to come into this work and come into the history and study the history in such detail in order to do the show, it, it dawns on me that in fact, it has everything to do with me simply because I am a human being attempting to exist in the American space. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, I think for the people who want to see it played traditionally, um, AKA white males of a certain age and a certain sound, um, you come to see the show and you realize that your brain, what we're doing is we're asking your brain to just expand a little and see that the intentions of the founding fathers, whether they knew it or not, extends to everyone who 
is to be called an American, right? So the, the words written into something like the Declaration of Independence, it belongs to, it's a promissory note to every American. And so I think the show itself serves as a, a diving board for people to have an opportunity to be challenged, to sort of shift the gaze from what you know the or what you think you know the history as and have other voices and other bodies express that history and see how there's a through line all the way to today in terms of consequences of that history. So if you were to see a white older man playing Ben Franklin and saying the words, it sort of remains in this historic glass cage of that's history, right? Right. When you hear a black queer woman um, say certain words uh, as intended for to come from the mouth of Benjamin Franklin, it, it shifts your mind into other places of how the history impacts other bodies, right? And so you can find resonance with that. You can find disagreement. You can find understanding in a new way. I think when you come to look at the history presented in the show played by these specific bodies, which is um, very many um, ethnicities, uh, of course, a uh, different gender identification and um, also size and shape, right? Color, size, shape, creed, um, upbringing, uh, ethnicity, all of that is on that stage. And every single one of those bodies would have been excluded from the room at the time. But what was proclaimed in that room at the time belongs to every single body that is on that stage. And affects every single body that it's it on that stage. Every single one. So those bridges, I think, the show actually, rather than um, burning bridges, I think it actually attempts to build them. You know, if people are willing to sort of step out of their tribal safety space and come into the environment and see it, right? Right. Um, so that's the way it's impacted me is by realizing that it's very easy for me as a black woman, as an immigrant woman, to write off the founding fathers as white slave owning men that cared nothing about me. Right. Why right. would I study them? Um, and I, I, I'm going to continue to using my use myself because, of course, that's I'm, I can only speak for myself. But in fact, what I've come to learn is that these were young men for the most part. Um, in ages ranging from 26 to, I believe, uh, something like 47, with Benjamin Franklin skewing that medium because he was older. Right. These were young men coming together from what at the time were basically different countries, right? Each colony considered itself its own country. So you, you in the writing, you will hear the country of Virginia, the country of New York, and they were coming together to say, well, we will be stronger as a, as a republic, as one nation. So how do we do that? Oh, we do that by committing treason, by breaking from the king. And when you start to lean in to what that really is, what it is, is protest. Right. Right. What it is, is deciding that what the current government that oversees your country 
is the conditions it's telling you to live in, you no longer want to live in those conditions. And what struck me very intensely was protest is written into the DNA of the United States. Right. It's how it was founded. It's how it was founded. It was founded by breaking the law. Once you decided that you were going against the King of England as a colony of England, you were breaking the law. Once you decided you were no longer going to pay those taxes, you were breaking the law. Once you decided you were going to write, you were going to put in writing and on paper that we are breaking from you and we are willing to go to war for it. That's treason and that is against the law. And that's what these men were doing. And they had to come up with complex and brilliant strategizing, um, putting their lives on the line and their fortunes and <laughs> their sacred honor. That's from the document. Um, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor to this goal. And I can resonate with all of that, right? right. right. All of that, if you look to any marginalized community now, my advice to them is go to the writing of the founding fathers. You will find a voice there, which is something I would have never thought of prior to being a part of the show. Of course. I mean, there are uh, so many parallels. Ex exactly. In terms, right of, now. in terms of the conversation of protest, mm -hmm. right? And now on the flip side of that and where it becomes complicated, where it becomes complex, where it becomes hypocritical, where it becomes flawed is that all of this depended on free labor, but not just free labor, but exploited labor and tortured labor, labor, right? right. So amidst these conversations of the brilliance of these men is also this um, depraved existence of owning human bodies, right? And not, and not just, I'm not just saying, oh, the founding fathers were depraved, but I'm saying the the existence at the time, the system at the time, um, the the construct at the time was depraved. There were all sorts of reasons to justify um, enslaving people. Uh, but regardless of their brilliance, regardless of their bravery, um, there was also hypocrisy um, and the show leans into that. The show leans into the fact that it's it, a common argument that you hear is that they were men of their time, right? Right. Um, and that holds a, a certain truth. But men of that time were also abolitionists, right? They also Oof. looked at slavery and thought that it was... Um, a system that must end because these were human bodies, right? Even if we didn't recognize ourselves in them, we as in, even if white people did not recognize themselves in enslaved African and African-American bodies, they were still human beings. So um, if I can share with you, there's a, a an historical fact that Thomas Jefferson wrote a clause that said slavery must end 
but because the Congress of the, at the time, consisting of 13 colonies, required a unanimous vote to agree to commit treason, AKA declare independence, right? Um, they all had to agree. And one of the way, one of the things that some of the colonies said was, oh, we are not giving up our slavery. We won't do it. And if you want our vote, if you want a unanimous vote, if you want us all to stand as one front and truly as one nation, then you have to take that clause out. It was Rutledge, right? It, it was, as portrayed in the show, yes, it was Rutledge, but you can imagine it was also a delegation of various um, various colonies that at now we would refer to as the South, right? So North Carolina, South Carolina, likely delegates from Virginia. I mean, Thomas Jefferson owned over 600 slaves. God. Right? Um and uh, probably, and, and Northerners too, Northerners that, that themselves um, owned enslaved bodies. It didn't matter how well you dressed them. Right. right? Um, so there were, to, there was certainly an understanding that, okay, to quote a line from the show, the issue here is independence, right? And that's a through line to things that happen in Congress today. You have to go one issue at a time. It's very difficult for people to feel like we, we, we're doing everything at once. It feels too disruptive and it feels too economically volatile. So they decide, let's take the clause out and we'll deal with slavery at another point. Let's gain independence first. Um, right. It, so it, that, 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 you know, really leaning into all that for me it, it has expanded me as a human being existed in the existing in the American conversation and existing in a black body. Yeah. I, 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 it's hard to even kind of conceptualize some of it and which is why it's important to see it on a stage. Right. And what's also important, of course, to quote, of course, Hamilton is who tells the story, you know? Well, exactly. Because I, I'm so glad you said that, because like I said, it's, it's, we, it's here in America, it's beloved as claiming independence, right? Mm. If, if the, if the new American continent had lost, those men would have gone down in history as committing treason, Right. Right. That that would have been their legacy. Their legacy was they committed treason and they were um, uh, anti-government and would, you know, the, the history would have written and sounded very different. So it's all it always depends on who tells the story. It always depends on it. There's also another I mean, I think Franklin has all the brilliant lines in the show where he says, um, that what is it rebellion is only legal in the third person i mean i'm sorry rebellion is legal in the first person such as our rebellion it is only illegal in the third person such as their rebellion right and that's the nature of that's kind of the tightrope America walks, right? It's like, well, if it's my cause, I want you to make my cause the legal thing. And the cause of the other, the cause of uh, whatever this voice is saying it wants should be illegal. 
right? And we've gone through years and years and years and years of changing those laws, right? So for example, um, segregation, right? I want to live in a white segregated society and that should be legal. The person that wants to live in a in an integrated society, that person is, is stating something that's, that is illegal. And then you have to protest, you have to go into the street, you have to put your life on the line for it to then be considered by the law of the land as, as something that should be shifted to have the other voice now become legal, now become legal, right? So there's always a, a there's always a gain and there's always a loss. And equality is expensive. Equality is always going to feel like a loss to the person that's always had the most. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. It's always going to feel like a loss because you, you can just and to make put that in simple terms. I'm born first. I have a red ball. I love this red ball. I use this red ball all the time. And then I get a baby sister and I'm told I have to share that red ball with my baby sister. And I'm like, what? They're like, well, you get equal time. You get two hours with the red ball. She gets two hours. I was like, yeah, but I used to get four hours. <laughs> so that's the thing about equality. It's a fantastic philosophical idea, but it's actually really hard for the human psyche to wrap its head around. And the way that we do that is through laws because we just can't depend on humans to do it fairly and justly without some sort of consequence. Ugh, isn't that sad? Well, I have to say one, a disclosure. Uh, we have two pugs that are on the couch and they always tend to snore um, loudly. So if you hear a snore, it is a dog on the couch. <laughs> hey, puggies. Um, no, what it, what it brings to mind, actually, uh, and this is why it's got to be a fascinating time to not only be doing 1776, but be doing it in this manner, yeah. is, you know, we just had the wrap of the 1-6 committee hearings today. Right. And, and all of those people, those insurrectionists who desecrated the Capitol were yelling, this is our 1776. Yes, that's right. And, and they believed it wholeheartedly. Yes. And it was, you know, to, to use the terms already stated, it was their cause. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they believed themselves to be right. And now only through the, you know, thank goodness, the, you know, justice system prevailing. Yes. Um, was it deemed illegal and it's still ongoing up in the air whether exactly. there are consequences for you know the high highest of the people who started it but exactly but this is for example of what you know insurrection so what america calls insurrection you know the rest of the world would say is a is a coup right right and 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 that's what a coup is if they had more people if they had more power it's very possible they could have stormed that capital um, you know, roll Trump in if, tr if Trump had decided this, uh, you know, this is what America needs. I am now the um, ruling president of the United States. And, and there was, you know, more of the country behind him. Coups happen in countries often. Governments are overthrown. And if they are successful, they now have the pen of legality in their hands. And can, re and can proclaim 
their our rebellion as legal, right? Right. So it so this was an attempt at a coup, and they those Jan six, uh, you know, Proud Boys, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, did not have the numbers or the support. In another timeline, they very well might have. Yeah, they came close. Then in, in another timeline, they very well might have, and now the law that stands now they now have to stand you know uh they now have to face the law that stands so much of it is related to it, you're right it's it's the winner the winner who gets to make the laws and yes yeah. who has won or so who has won or who has lost right it's so th- I mean this story, this story that we're talking about, uh, the story of 1776 and the story of America and all that, I guess really is relatable to um, any tourist or someone who isn't from America because this kind of is something that can be seen through the lens of many other places, right? In a way, right? Because for the most part, the Europe, uh, particularly Britain. Portugal, Spain, France, you know, they had all of these colonies all over the world, right? America is the only nation that upon declaring independence, AKA deciding to break from the king, from the time the the decision was unanimously decided, they called themselves a country. America called itself, or rather, the founding fathers called this new nation the United States of America. Um, in the conversation of other countries, and I, I can, I'm willing to anyone listening who wants to correct me on this. Um, usually, it's there is a declaration of independence or a request for independence. Um, diplomatic meetings are had. Conversations are had treaties are signed and then a date is picked for the handing over so for example in a country like grenada when when we celebrate independence it is the day that the uh the queen or her representative comes to the island the british flag is lowered and the grenada flag is raised and we are now standing on the nation of grenada america did not wait for that they claimed independence. They said July 4th, which in itself, which is also a wrong date. The document actually wasn't fully signed until August. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, America is the one nation that kind of said, we're not waiting. We're not waiting for permission. Right. It's so um, interesting. It's really interesting. And I think, I think, there is so much, for example, like when you said the insurrectionists were saying this is our 1776. I wonder, I mean, I would have to do research, right? But when they say that, what do they mean? You know? I they mean, probably I mean, don't even know. Exactly. So, so, so because even... That, that's what I say. When I, when I, as being a part of the show, the way that I realize where the, I can understand why these men have been iconicized 
um, because of the, the, particularly in their writing, putting, putting politics to paper, putting pen to paper and putting these ideas as a thought that the people should live by is something that's very, very powerful. You can understand why reading and writing were denied to certain people for so long. Right, it's because it's a tool. Because all those ideas are there to inspire you and to empower you. And when I tell you I am so, I'm both moved and frustrated at the fact that many, many minority groups, and I mean that in terms of all intersections, right, um, can look to the words of the founding fathers and say, this is intended, this is the intention of this man or these men for the people that would call themselves American. And people will get very upset about that. They will be very upset to think that, um, you know, people in the streets protesting against police brutality would conjure up the names of the founding fathers and use them as an example um, of why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and yet those, those are the same people that would be like, I'm going to storm the Capitol, right? It's this thing of the you, me. It's like, no, it's meant for me. That belongs to me. That is for me to do, not for you to do when the intention whether it was meant or not, whether it was like, I'm sorry, let me be clear, whether the intention, I'm sorry, whether the idea was intentional or not, once a person is deemed an American by law, the ideas of the founding documents are their right. And it doesn't just belong to one group because they look a certain way they marry a certain way, or they pray a certain way, right? Right. It belongs to anyone that legally is deemed an American. And that can be hard to wrap your mind around. Again, it's the equality thing. When you think, you look at the pictures of the founding fathers and you see yourself, you're like, oh, they meant me. When in fact, in the room, they didn't. Right. In the room, they meant educated, um, literate, property-owning men. <laughs> but the words that they put to paper becomes something else as the country, as the nation they founded grows. The words itself now becomes man, all men are created equal. And that means humankind. It doesn't mean man, woman, or child. It's humankind. Right. And those, those ideas are very, very powerful. And yet coming from the minds of men who, you know, raped, tortured, and owned other bodies. John Adams is one of the few founding fathers that did not own slaves. And he was a big advocate of, of the Declaration of, of Independence, of, 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 of not just writing it, but like truly declaring it and putting your life on the line to fight for it. 
Um, so, so John Adams never had slaves. As far as I understand it, again, I am always, I like being told I'm wrong um, because it means I can learn and grow. <laughs> uh, so John Adams, John Adams did not own slaves from what I know and understand. I don't know if this is brought up in the show or not. I did do the show years and years and years and years ago. I was born before Jesus. Yes. But um, between you and me. <laughs> how, how is it rectified in the story of America using slavery, misogyny, power, all of the things that we're taught not to do in Sunday school, but using the um, cornerstone of Christianity as like its foundation? You know, I don't know. I would actually have to look that up. I actually think that's another assumption about the history. I think there were a lot of the, of the, I'm saying founding fathers, but I know the founding fathers bring to mind very specific men, right? There were many of them. Yeah. Right? I played Joseph Hughes of North Carolina. Unless you're from North Carolina, you probably don't know Joseph Hughes. Right. Unless you've been in 1776, you probably don't know Edward Rutledge. Right. right? You probably don't know John Dickinson of Pennsylvania unless you're from PA. We tend to think of five or six of them, Franklin. Adams, uh, Thomas. Washington, Thomas Jefferson, you know, but what I mean by founding fathers are the men who were in the, on the delegation of the 13 colonies that would become the birthstone of the United States of America. And very many of them were keen to separate religion from governing the people. Right. So the assumption of uh, the, their reference to God, you will see they use the word providence a lot, um, which was more philosophical, this idea of a greater entity mm -hmm. versus the God of, say, like the Catholic or the Episcopalian church. Mm -hmm. right? So it, it's interesting. It's really, I think it's a powerful question that you put to me that I would, I, I definitely say my answer is um, it's shallow, it's unstudied, it's unresearched. But I am of the feeling that when we eventually get to that conversation of separation of church and state, it is because of the understanding that, well, what do you do when different people worship differently? You have, at the time, it was things like Quakers, and you had the traditional Episcopalian church of the British government. You had the very Catholic church of the French government. You know, what happens when those, you know, does that impact how you uh, govern? So it's interesting when people say, like, uh, you know, this is a Christian nation. I, I don't think that is implicitly wrong, but I, I, I would put money, <laughs> I would put money down that in the writings of these men, there was also a conversation around God being a, a, an entity of greatness that you strive toward, um, but not necessarily who runs your, the, the, this thing that runs your judgment.
Um, and that might that might be a little garbled and a little bit wordy. Um, and for those listening, it might be like, what? <laughs> um, but what I mean is, I think there, again, in my un, unresearched response, we have to be, continue to be careful about the assumptions of the insertion of church and God um, into the conversation of choices that were made. I think so much of it um, was more related to the rights, which they would say comes from nature. It is natural, right? Versus comes your right, it is, your right is God-given. You, you'll find in their writing, they say something like, your, your right to be free, this is in the show, the right to be free comes from nature, right? So the way you put a seed in the ground and you expect it to grow into an oak, that natural process is what freedom is. So it, it's a very interesting, and I think it's like, uh, it deserves its own separate space of conversation about how did they justify their actions um, if they were God-fearing men. Now, what I can tell you is the Catholic Church specifically, and likely that means many other churches, uh, justified the torture, rape, and misuse of uh, enslaved bodies by saying they had no soul, that they were savage that they were not of God. The church proclaimed this. And therefore, whatever you do to them holds no moral uh, consequence. Did they ever change their point of view? Who? The Catholic the church? church. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the Catholic church is in the constant state of, ooh, did we say that? Oh, let's apologize and, you know, like, I mean, they're now barely getting into the conversation of molestation, attitude toward homosexuality, um, uh, attitude towards women. Uh, I mean, uh, some of those things are just ingrained into the existence of the, the well, I'm, I'm saying Catholic Church specifically because, again, if you're thinking about other empires like Spain, it, Italian, Portugal, um, French. And then, of course, with Henry VIII, we had the inception of the Episcopalian, or Ang uh, we call it in the Caribbean, the Anglican Church, which is where Henry VIII wanted the divorce. The Catholic Church would not grant it, and he decided as king he was closest to God so he could start his own church. It's so, it's so interesting how the truth capital T is always being spoken and then how the truth capital T is always being changed. Isn't that true? Like today, this is the truth next year. It's going to be a different truth. Forget about what we did 200 years ago. Right. Our, uh, anyway. Right. Um, but, but I think that's an important point because to, to just be like, this is, this is, I think, 
why people continue to feel marginalized in a country such as America that is that holds so much potential and um, that holds so much hope. It's when you say forget about, leave that there, put it in the past. I think it's more important to lean into the thing and say, this is what happened in the past. Right. This is something that we need to heal and rectify. How do we, instead of painting our history in this, on this beautiful canvas and insisting that's the picture, that we look into the ugly parts of it and say, oh, here's where we made tre tremendous error. How do we fix that so that it doesn't happen again? Yeah. And it's taking a long time because it, 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 it's this insistence that it's America the great. And it is. At, at, the, at the end of the day, the, the potential that is the United States of America is, is a really beautiful concept, right? Um, but if, it, if we don't fix our wounds, if we don't fix the cracks in the foundation, the house is going to fall, right? So it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And that's the thing. It's really uncomfortable to do the work that's needed as we put off generation after generation the ugliness. Because the people that will say, oh, you know, this time, this era was beautiful, everybody worked, everybody owned a house, everybody whatever, you look at the people who are saying that and you realize, oh, you obviously um, were not denied a loan because you were black or native. Um, you obviously were not denied uh, love because of your race. Um, or because of your sexual identification. Um, you obviously, you, you were outside of that. So of course things seemed idyllic, right? That's the, hence the make America great again. Exactly. And so yeah. it was like great to what? Yeah. And that great. question to me is so important. Great to what? To a time, anybody who wants to make it great again, what are you referring to? And if you lived an idyllic life at a certain point, it's very important to think about, did you feel safe, happy, and provided for because other people did not have access to, other people were segregated from, other people were denied. It's you because had, they had the red ball all had, to themselves. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> exactly. Or you had the red ball all to yourself. And to ask to go back to that, in 20, you know, 16 through 22 is, um, I mean, it's painfully disrespectful and it's, it's so tone deaf, right? Mm -hmm. And I tried to leave myself open. I, I, I really tried to do the, <laughs> it's funny, the quote is when you're pointing one finger, four fingers are pointing back at you. That's not quite through, it's three fingers, but anyway, um, I do try to leave myself open because I can tell you, as far as I'm concerned, as a child in the Caribbean, my childhood was idyllic, right? 
but it was idyllic because of the things that my family had access to and what they could give to me and the neighborhoods that we could live in and the, the, the family and friends around us. And I will always talk about that with great delight. But as I, again, as I've been a part of this show, it's, it's made me think, well, it's very important to claim, to claim it as my idyllic versus the time was idyllic. Oh, Onika, remind me where you're from. I was born on the, I was born on South America in the country of Guyana. And then I moved to Grenada when I was very young. So I, I claim Grenada as home uh, simply because it is where my most um, fundamental memories live. Um, but, but both places are home. Both are Caribbean uh, nations. Do you get back much? Yeah, I tried to go. I would have gone for Christmas if I was not in the show. If I wasn't famous in a show. <laughs> I, uh, I, the last time I was home in Grenada was 2019 into 2020. And, uh, and then I tried to get to the region. I consider the Caribbean my home. My sister lives in Barbados. I spent a lot of time in Trinidad. So I was last in Barbados to visit my sister in August of 22. And last home home in Grenada in, uh, into 2020. And I remember on January 1st, having a really funny feeling in my head about the excitement over 2020, like the, 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 the numbers of it all. Right. And, uh, I remember thinking, I don't know, I, I am feeling a bit of a premonition and I, I was going to post about that on Facebook. And I thought, why would you put that into the universe? Why would you, you know, <laughs> trample on people's hopes and their joy. And so I didn't. <laughs> and it's so funny, 2020 started with these uh, almost continent-wide fires in Australia. Yeah. And soon after that, um, Kobe Bryant died in a tragic helicopter accident. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being like, oh, that's what my brain was. That's the vibration my brain was picking up, like all these animals and homes and whatever lost in Australia. And this, the devastation of losing an icon, um, particularly for black bodies of uh, Kobe Bryant. And then <laughs> it was like, nope, that's not that's not what it was. That was the warm up. That was the warm up. And then, you know, COVID happened and uh I, I'm very fortunate to have gone home before all of that because I've not been able to get to Grenada. Is that true? I've not been able to get to Grenada since, but I have been to Jamaica, to Barbados, to Antigua um, to connect with what I consider is home. What for me is to plug into who I am, my history, my culture, um, my ethnicity, my bloodline, um, which is, really, really essential for me um, in terms of the immigrant experience to America. If you need a Broadway travel partner, yes, <laughs> um, give me a call. Mm -hmm. I will go and I will be the personal assistant. Yes! <laughs> You're going to have to fight my best friend who is also Grenadian. She's all, she has said this to me since we were children. She was like, I will be your personal assistant and publicist. 
<laughs> I'll be there. I'll be your best friend's assistant. There you go. <laughs> so, Aniko, um, I'm. This has been fascinating. I I want to get in a little bit of Shenandoah since that's kind of the bent of this yeah. journey. How did you hear about or come to Shenandoah? Okay, so here we go. I remember. I remember getting your. Uh, okay, I'll put it to you like this. My Shenandoah experience is one of the hardest uh, experiences of my life. Um, it is related to the conversation and um, the, the immigrant story. It's also related to a tribalism and how you fit in. But how it starts, how the story starts is, is really, really fascinating because I was in Trinidad for a summer workshop. Um, my parents would... I would come to them with options for the summer and I loved going to Trinidad. Trinidad at the time, I mean, even now, it was like the metropolis of the Caribbean, right? Um, it just was, it felt bigger and more modern than any other country. And uh, I have family and friends there and my parents sent me there for, I believe it was a, a four week uh, dance workshop. And it just so happened that um, Elizabeth Bergman, who was the chair of the dance department at Shenandoah University at the time, was in Trinidad on sabbatical. She happened to be in this workshop, um, uh, you know, at doing her own research as a, a dance educator, et cetera, as, being in the Caribbean, studying uh, different sounds and and forms of movement that she could bring to this conservatory in Winchester, Virginia, home of Patsy Cline, um, you know, just in her own effort to expand the conversation that centered powerfully around a very certain program of ballet, modern, and and uh, jazz, right? Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Bergman saw me in class and she happened to pull me over and, and I am very fortunate, not just in my career, but in my life, that the teachers and directors that have, um, that have guided me or mentored me, they saw my potential even before I did, or they understood how to guide it. Um, so I might have the grand overall dream, right? I want to be on Broadway, right? That's a, that's the grand dream, but there's a whole lot of mechanics that has to happen to, to make that a reality. And, uh, I think Elizabeth saw a talent in me and she had a conversation with me about what I wanted to do. And at the time I had, uh, resigned to being like, I, I wanted to be a lawyer, um, I still would be, honestly. And um, and she's like, have you thought about uh, taking your dance further outside of, instead of just stopping it? I was like, well, you know, in the Caribbean, at least at the time, not now, things have changed some, but it, it there's a glass ceiling, right? You do it to a certain point and then you lay it down and you go about quote unquote real life. So, uh, I'm trying to make this very long story short and I'm not doing a good job, but basically 
I, I, I finally, uh, my, my family, we were moving from Grenada to East Africa, to Eritrea. I went to dinner with my family in Eritrea and we were having a discussion about college and I kind of just blurted out, I want to dance professionally um, because I wasn't sure how else I was going to say it. And they were taken aback. And my, I remember my father, he, that I, I believe that's the night he gave me the consequence conversation, which is um, every decision has consequences, good or bad. You have to stand by them, right? And uh, so if you want to make this decision, whatever the consequences of them are, you have to stand firmly in them. And as part of that, they were like, okay, well, here's what. You can minor in dance and major in something else. So I brought that to Elizabeth and Elizabeth said, well, if you go, I listed some of the schools I wanted to go to that included like UNC, George Washington, Howard, um, and uh, one other, I forget, I think it's Rutgers. And she said, these are good schools, but if you go into their dance program, you'll be relegated to the back of the room. The classes will be enormous. You'll get overwhelmed. Um, your technique will not be quite up to par. Uh, and the teachers won't have the space or time to help you. In so many words, that, it, all of that sounds harsh, but Elizabeth was very kind in that explanation. She helped me understand at the age of what, 19, what she was saying. And what she was saying is if you come to this smaller school, your potential can be honed. It can become something great because we have the time, space, and facility to allow the attention that you need. And at the end of the day, uh, she worked with me to um, be able to double major. So I double majored in a bachelor's of business management and a bachelor's of dance performance. Um, I threw myself into my work at Shenandoah. I was absolutely lost at that school. I was a plastic bag in the wind. On another timeline, I would have dropped out or um, I would have dropped out of school or dropped out of life. Um, it was very lonely. It was very isolating. I belonged to not a single group. The friends I eventually made were because I faked it until I made it. And that's the truth. I, uh, the, the black students who would become my friends, um, initially just, they just, did not know what to do with me, right? It's just like, why you talk like that? Where the hell are you from? What do you know? What is Grenada? What are you? What is going on? You know, and then the the flip side was every single one of my classes, I was the only black student in them. And that had never been my experience. I come from a black nation. I've always stood, I stood in my blackness before standing in your blackness was a thing that you needed to say out loud. It was just intrinsic to who I am. I It wasn't like, like I was being told by some of the black students, like you're not black because you don't know anything about the black American experience. And now at the age that I am now, I understand what they meant and they were not wrong, right? The black experience is not a monolith. The black Caribbean experience is not the African-American experience. It is not. You have to come here and be in it and live in it to understand it. So that is also the remnants of colonization where you pit people that could 
come together against each other by saying one stands in a different category than the other. And while they do, it's not for the reasons that you might think. It's not because one is better than the other. It's because access and and uh, uh, one one a country like America from the Black experience has a long conversation in oppression. A country like Grenada that that has mostly Black uh, uh, a Black population. I've always seen my government be black, my teachers be black, my parents, my love, my beloved friends, fam. I've always loved being who I am. Every second of my life, I've loved being who I am. And that was all called into question coming into that school, and I didn't know what to do. And my um, my family at that time had moved to Africa, and this was what ninety six. So at the time, I don't know if you all remember this, but you had to buy phone cards to make yes. national cords, calls. And of course, you're in college. So you buy what? A rinky dinky $7 phone card and you get three minutes to call East Africa. So I'm basically calling my parents at two in the morning because of the time difference. And before I can even get a word in, the card is telling me your time is up, you know. The internet was just coming online. And so letter writing was how I would try to stay in touch with my friends. Mm -hmm. um, I was not used to the weather. And so I threw myself into my schoolwork. I was doing 32 credits a semester, 18 dance, 18 business. I had to go to the president of the university every semester to get his permission to do so. I think the cap at the time was... 20 credits and that has to do with mental health and safety so that you're not um, kind of driving yourself crazy with work. And I had to get a sign off from the president of the university to be able to do those 32 credits. And uh, it worked because I was always in the studio and then always in a business class. And I existed in a space of loneliness and fear and sadness and I just kind of poured that into my learning um I kind of took the lump of coal or what is it that uh da Vinci says uh the log the art is already in the log of wood you just have to chip it and find it um that's what yes. a, that's what a great sculptor does so I think I had this log of wood that I felt was weighing me down and there were moments that were like, you know, should I just jump into a river with this log of wood and be done with it? Um, not to say that I ever considered suicide, but I think that I certainly understood why people might. Mm. And then once I was able to gain some grounding, and it was specifically because two friends that I call my brothers, one who was in the army um, at Fort, is it Bragg, I think, in North Carolina, and my brother up at Johns Hopkins, both from Grenada, once they became accessible, I found myself returning to myself and I, my, I reclaimed my joy. I started recognizing myself um, and I found a place of safety in them. And I will always, with all my heart, um, the, another place of safety lived with my teachers in the dance department. Uh, Erica Helm, Tin Yu Chen, um, Alan, uh, 
uh, Karen, these people, they did their best they, they could to understand this little Caribbean child, Elizabeth Bergman, to understand this Caribbean child and recognize my sadness. And even though they didn't know what to do specifically in terms of healing culture shock, which is actually culture trauma, um, is that they really gave me the attention that I needed in terms of honing my craft. They gave me access to the studios for individual rehearsal and practice. And I would be in those studios until one or two in the morning. I remember the security guards knew I would be, like I doubt that is something that could happen today. The university has since expanded much more. Um, but I, you know, I, I have to be honest with you all is that even when you all approached me, I thought, gosh, this brings up so much uh, thinking back to that experience. Like I, I literally have um, circumstantial amnesia. <laughs> like there's things that my brain have control all deleted uh, from the experience. But by the end of it, but you ask anybody, ask anybody that saw me dance, that saw me on that campus, you know, they would think I was confident and uh, uh, not at all in the state that I'm explaining, which is exactly why it's good to check in on, on, on the people you think are strong uh, because often that strength is from a place of pretense. Yeah, and, I never, I never would have thought that about yeah, that because we came the same year together, ninety six, I believe. Ninety, I, I came in January of ninety six. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. I remember seeing you dance in the dance concerts and just the the power of your movement and and I loved all those dance teachers as well. They were yeah. wonderful. Um, yes. Yes. Wonderful. Uh, just kind of. Uh. Sherpas, yeah. you know, for yeah. want of a better word, uh, mm -hmm. for all of us who were just trying to find out who we were, who what we, we were going to do with our lives. Right. Um, right, right. But it's so interesting to me that that not only, I mean, did you do all those credits? My God, that's why you have amnesia because you had so much class <laughs> stuff in your head. I mean, you were you were all business and all like all yeah. dance all day. All day, all day, yeah. and or in the library all the time. I felt like if I gave my myself too much, I mean, uh, well, this is a, a hindsight analysis, right? Is that at the time I may not have known that's what I was doing, but that I just felt safest in the work. I felt most accomplished and most myself either working my ass off in the studio or working my ass off in the library to turn in a, a, a paper for the, the school of business. Right. Um, and what I understand that now uh, is like a, a sort of self-protective mode that I went into uh, socially, you know, I, you look at, you know, I literally knowing that I was coming to do the interview was looking at these albums that I have from school and, I really did bond with some people, but it was always, I always thought, I wasn't actually sure if they were real, if those bonds were real until probably 
the second semester of my junior year into my senior year, um, where I felt that's probably where I felt my most confident. And like I said, my, the most myself, but I tell you Newton's third law of motion for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I will tell you that experience at Shenandoah is likely the very reason why I've had a sex, a successful career, um, in this industry, uh, Broadway, um, about, about touring professional performance. It's that experience of, I'm, I'm basically a game in mental health and figuring out how do I stay healthy when I stay, when I feel my most depressed because the industry itself is a conversation and continuous judgment of your work. That's what an audition is, right? Mm -hmm. It's continuous judgment of your work. And the reality is what I have done. Uh, I've done five Broadway shows in one capacity or another. And of those five shows, how many auditions for different shows have I been to? Hundreds, right? So the 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 yes to the, it's it's almost like a nonsensical thing to put yourself through, <laughs> but it's like the the training of really having to steal yourself in order to come out successful on the other side. That was that's a story that's replicated all the time for me in the business, and I get better and better at it every time. I I love that. I love. Um, I've, I've just, just looking at our mutual friends. I'm wondering since I see you did the West Side Story international tour, was Natasha your? Um, she was Anita? one. Yes, yeah, she was. She was. Was wait? Did I do it when I was? On that tour, Lana Gordon was my Anita and uh, Natalia, I forget her last name. And then I believe we had a situation where uh, Lana had to leave, I think, and Natalia, uh, I'm sorry. Um, Natasha. Natasha came in and I met Natasha. And it's so interesting. All three of those women said to me, you can play this role. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I worked, I worked my ass off, worked my ass off. I went through two years of rejection of the director telling me no. Well, actually he telling me you're not ready. And um, then finally he said yes. And I ended up playing Anita for uh, the last, what would be the last stint of my experience with the show. Uh, that, and that was an incredible, absolutely in my top five, professional performance experiences but Natasha Lana and Natalia are three women who by their example by their kindness by their friendship by their talent by their skill watching them do the thing and asking myself can you do that um and by their encouragement uh are three women that are important to my attaining the role myself Natasha is a dear, dear friend of ours and frequent yeah. collaborator and lives like across the street from us. So, hey girl. Hey girl. I just, I think she is just 
such a wonderful woman and she's constantly in my uh, messages with words of upliftment. I mean, the most beautiful sentences uh, to read that, you know, sometimes I'm like, you don't want to read that uh, too often because your head would be so, <laughs> so swollen, you know, such a source of upliftment and encouragement from Natasha. Well, you have been a source of incredible upliftment. Yeah, yes. tonight. I just love listening to you. I just have one question before you go. Sure. What is your zodiac? Oh, you see, that's not one question. My zodiac is Gemini. Oh my gosh, I was going to say you're a Gemini because yes. you are making me move through the air and touch the sun. <laughs> and I'm also in the Chinese zodiac. I am a, a dragon born in a fire year. So um, there's a lot going on there, but also we will have to have a whole debate on on signs, etc., because of my attachment to astronomy versus astrology but that is definitely a conversation for another day and i just want to say i just want to say before i go if there's anyone listening that has the opportunity the show closes on january 8th right it's a limited run uh it closed 1776 closes on january 8th if there's anyone listening that has an opportunity to see it in its iteration on broadway i encourage you to do so and please feel free to send me any questions about my participation in it. And just to remind people in a time that feels, for me too, that feels very um, divisive. Is that the word? Is that the word? Yes. Divisive. And like, and disruptive and even unkind um that america really holds a, the country holds a lot of hope in it and it's up to us as the citizens of the nation to bring to light the best parts of it um and that's a lot of work and that can get very uncomfortable but the only thing i can do is encourage people to lean into that discomfort versus backing away from it because backing away from it is what has been done for centuries and it's time for us to to try another approach uh to ensure that we're doing our best to take care of each other so just want to leave that with everybody amen amen yeah well thank you so much for chatting with us anika on your night off i it means so much to us we're so blessed to have uh had this time with you and thank best you. of luck in everything coming next for you thank you so so much i really appreciate it and thank you for encouraging me encouraging me myself to lean into my own discomfort and to have this conversation with you um and to acknowledge in myself the things that i have accomplished and the things that were hard and the things that were good that all make up who i am now um so i appreciate uh, having that catharsis through this conversation. Uh, I appreciate you. I just appreciate everything about you. So thank yeah. you so thank much. You so much. All right. Bye. All right, bye. 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 <laughs> Thank you so much, Anika, for uh, talking to us. We loved it. We had such a great time. Happy closing. Happy closing to you. And we hope it goes well. And 
that it's uh, that another journey's right around the, the bend. Um, if you want to learn more about us, please visit www.connorsmithmusicals.com. That's Connor with an E-R. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, and Patreon under Connor and Smith. Again, Connor with an E-R. Please rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. really helps us out a lot. Share it where you share things. Post it where you post things. Tell your friends and neighbors. All that good stuff. There is a Discord, a page in which you can go on that is not on social media, that is just uh, the people who uh, want to check out more. It's been a little quiet over the holidays, so hopefully it'll get a little more uh, busy in the new year, but uh, do check out the Discord page. You can share photos, things like that. Keep it on the up and up, if you know what I mean. Um, and yeah, that is about it. We are so happy to be back and we'll have more coming your way in uh, the new year. And until next time, bye. Bye, everybody.